All right, we are back. I want to talk about a little more what just has to be bad news. I don't know how else to frame this. I, I saw this piece by Ryan Lillis in The Bee, and I just, he just kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. The headline was, Branch Removed from Iconic Sacramento Tree. There was a photograph. The caption said, This 50-foot branch of a giant elm tree in Sacramento's Elmhurst neighborhood was removed last Wednesday. The branch, which resembled a giant arm, led neighborhood residents to call the tree the Hugging Tree and the Elbow Tree. Noted Lillis, a city crew Wednesday morning was in the Elmhurst neighborhood of Sacramento to remove the iconic 50-foot branch from a massive elm that has stood on the median of T Street for decades. The branch resembled a long arm reaching toward the ground from the tree's base. For decades, children had climbed on the branch. This summer, Kirsten Anderson and Dan Henderson, a couple who live on T Street, got married under the limb. But then, neighbors started calling the city with concerns that the branch posed a safety risk. Tim Daly, a city arborist, said, We have to plan for the unforeseen, like someone bonking their heads or falling off the branch. He added, It was a very, very tough decision on all our parts. To which we would have to add, we wish it had been an even tougher decision on all your parts. You morons. In fact, stop, pause, let, let's, let's rewind the tape here. Let's, let me reread here again the justification for cutting down this 50-foot branch that amused neighbors have played on and gotten married under. Quote, we have to plan for the unforeseen. Now, it was Mr. Lillis who added the line, like someone bonking their heads or falling off the branch, but what else do you think was unforeseen by the city arborists? Lillis notes in the piece, there is a sliver of good news. Daly said the tree had not tested positive for Dutch elm disease. Yes, apparently earlier this year, his office expressed concern that the tree had the ailment and would have to be cut down for fear the disease would spread to other trees on the median, except for the fact that it didn't have Dutch elm disease. Peace notes, for now, city crews plan to prune dead branches from the tree this fall. Daly said the tree will survive for at least one more year, adding, we're doing everything we can to save the tree. The undiseased tree, which has stood on the median for decades. Yes, they're doing everything possible to, quote, save it, unquote. Well, I got to say, over the years, we've been pretty unimpressed by some of the brain power exhibited by our city employees and the state's capital. And I got to say, this has done nothing to change our low opinion. These same clowns decided they couldn't pick up our leaves out in the street and when Phil Angelides hired a company to come up with this draft environmental impact report that would help him make tens of millions of dollars, the city went, yeah, yeah, looks good to us. Anyway, of course, when it comes to getting bad service from your government, uh, the federal authorities seem to sometimes really show everybody how it's done. I want to quote from a piece by Phil Plate, who we've had on this program in the past, uh, uh, the, the proprietor of badastronomy.com. Said Phil Plate, three congressmen are using red tape to bind SpaceX to Earth. From the text. Hey, remember Senator Richard Shelby? 
The guy who threw needless layers of bureaucracy on SpaceX because the private company was doing its job of launching rockets into space a little too well? Well, it looks like he's being joined by gentlemen from the other side of the Capitol. Three congressmen are trying to do the same thing. Here's the deal. SpaceX, as you may know, is making good in its promise to make access to space cheaper and more reliable. Their Falcon 9 rocket is putting payloads into orbit for less money than the big government contractors charge. As one might expect, government officials who have such contractors in their own districts and states are unhappy with this, and apparently some are willing to smear SpaceX as retribution. Three House members, Mike Kaufman from Colorado, Mo Brooks from Alabama, and Cory Gardner from Colorado, have sent a memo to NASA demanding the agency investigate what they call, quote, an epidemic of anomalies, unquote, with SpaceX missions. Said Phil Plate, this is ridiculous for many reasons. For example, the congressmen say that SpaceX should be accountable to the American taxpayer. But in fact, as a contractor, the rules are different from them than it would be if NASA themselves built the rockets. Just as the rules are for Boeing or any other contractor. In fact, as reported by Space News, NASA didn't actually pay for the development of the Falcon 9. Elon Musk did. Another reason this is silly is that every rocket ever made has undergone problems. Their fiendishly complex machines and no design has ever gotten from the drafting board to the launch pad without issues. He outlines a few, then goes on to note the congressman's complaint that SpaceX is behind schedule smells like a red herring to me. Every new rocket has suffered delays. Of course, NASA's space launch system, the next generation rocket that's supposed to replace the shuttle, is suffering delays of its own. For full disclosure, I'm not a big fan of the SLS. And it's clear SpaceX is catching up and is set to leapfrog ahead with new tech like the Dragon V2 and Falcon Heavy. The latter is due for its first launch next year. Compare that with SLS, which won't have its first test launch until at least 2017, and a crew launched by 2021. Said Phil Plate, that's why this whole thing looks to me like a transparent attempt from members of our Congress to hinder a privately owned company that threatens their own interests. I'll note that Boeing, a major SLS contractor, has a big plant in Alabama. That's Brooks and Shelby's home state. And United Launch Alliance has its headquarters in Colorado, home to Gardner and Kaufman. I do have to note, by the way, that accompanying this piece was a little addendum, which was not necessarily related to the item in question, but I think it's worth quoting. It said, the Republican strategy for maintaining power is, one, rail against government as being inefficient and incompetent. Two, get elected. Three, be inefficient and incompetent in office. <laughs> Four, Repeat one through three. All right. Let's do a few miscellaneous items to wrap up today's show. How about this stat from Bloomberg.com? California now grows four-fifths of the world's almonds. It's a crop that uses enough water to supply 75% of the drought-parched state's population. I want to thank Joe for sending me a note last May, which noted that agriculture uses 80% of California's water. And yes, at some point when I finish it, I'm going to talk about the book, The King of California, by a couple of excellent writers for the LA Times. Talks a lot about the skullduggery of California's water wars, one of our favorite topics on this program. But uh, when you stack up almonds alone against Californians, well, 
Almonds alone use 10% of California's total water supply every year. When uh, Joe sent us that uh, email months ago, I wrote him back and said, thanks, I'll trot this out next time someone talks about saving our water by ripping up lawns. I'll ask him if they eat almonds. This induced a further response from Joseph, who wrote back to say, it takes more than a gallon of water to grow a single almond. Mr. Millen thinks that ought to be our stat of the month. Maybe it should. Joe went on, it may take 220 gallons of water to produce a large avocado, but pound for pound, there's an order of magnitude more water needed to get meat and dairy to your plate. A stick of butter, 500 gallons of water. A pound of beef, 5,000 gallons of water. And I have to add to that, there's a stat I can't put my hands on right now talking about, um, about how much water and energy goes into the creating of beef, and apparently it's just off the charts worse than chicken, pork, turkey, etc. Not sure exactly why that is, but we've talked about how we feed cattle in this country on corn because it's so bloody cheap you'd be crazy to use anything else if you're a beef producer, but cattle are not designed to eat corn. They're supposed to eat grass. So I think this is starting to settle it for me. I don't know if I'm ready to give up beef completely because I'm not a vegetarian, but I think I I simply have to give up eating beef that's not grass-fed. We've got about three or four minutes left, and I want to talk about some science because we like to talk about science on every program if we can. And Well, let's talk about oxygen. To me, one of the most astonishing things about biology is the fact that when life first evolved here on Earth, it did so in an oxygen-poor environment. And in fact, our atmosphere, which is about one-fifth oxygen, owes all of that gas to biology. Apparently, it was all produced by organisms. There's been some great shows on of late looking at life outside the Earth. And one signature they're going to start using to try and pick up any evidence of extraterrestrial life around uh, other planets once they get that James Webb Space Telescope up in orbit is the signature of oxygen. Oxygen is not stable in an atmosphere. You have to replenish it. I mean, there's plenty of oxygen on Mars, but it's all locked up in the rocks. That's why it's red. It's rusty. Same thing happened here on Earth, by the way, for a couple hundred million years. There was lots of iron in our oceans. I'm sure if you'd been a spacecraft visiting the Earth several billion years ago, the oceans would have all been green, full of iron. But when the oxygen came along, it deposited that iron in giant deposits, which are found all over the Earth, including the Grand Canyon. Anyway, a little article in New Scientist, uh, looking back at the pre-oxygenated Earth, noted that, the, yes, for the first half of Earth's existence, there was no O2 to be had. The air wasn't breathable, and life in the oceans was little more than sludge. But even in this hostile world, small oases of oxygen-rich water persisted, fueled by bacteria. And now, geologists have looked around and found evidence of those rocks. Yes, apparently Timothy Lyons at the University of California at Riverside has taken a look back at some rocks and discovered that uh, 2.8 billion years ago, in a place called Steep Rock Lake in Ontario, they found a mixture of iron minerals and limestone, as well as the remains of thin mats of microbes called stromatolites. The area was once a shallow shelf, partially isolated from the open sea by the stromatolite reef. 
The scientists have taken a look at some of the chemistry involved on this rock and noted that to form calcium carbonate, well, the water has to be first stripped of all of its dissolved iron. The best explanation for that is the bacteria pumped out enough oxygen to do so. So there was an oasis that persisted for probably many million years, which was oxygen rich. They think that when the sea levels rose after that and swamped the reef, that pretty much put an end to things. But yes, there were deposits of life somewhere here on Earth in an oxygen-rich environment. Of course, the flip side of that is that oxygen is toxic to many organisms, including some found in our very own guts, and yet they persist and manage to live. I think it's worth pausing and contemplating that for a moment to realize how crazy it is. A toxic gas, which seems to pervade all of our environment, isn't enough to kill organisms to which it's poison. They still find a way to survive. So I think we have to end today's program with a toast to life. L'chaim. And Mr. Millen, I'm sure you can find a copy of that on our, the soundtrack of Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, thank you for production of today's program, by the way. You're quite welcome. Our thanks also to America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst. We're grateful to have him on a weekly basis. In the weeks to come, we're hoping to bring you Don Folsom to talk about his book on Richard Nixon. Also, James Fallon to talk about his book on him being a psychopath. And hopefully, Tony Wheeler, the founder of Lonely Planet. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week. Here's to our prosperity, our good health and happiness, and most important, to life, to life, l'chaim. L'chaim, l'chaim, to life. Here's to the father I try to be. Here's to my bride to be. Drink l'chaim, to life, to life, l'chaim. L'chaim, l'chaim, to life. Life has a way of confusing us. Blessing and bruising us. Drink l'chaim, to life. God would like us to be joyful, even when our hearts lie panting on the floor. Much more can we be joyful when there's really something to be joyful for? To life, to life, l'chaim. To title my daughter, my wife. It gives you something to think about, something to drink about. Drink l'chaim. To life, live more Yes, there's a Drinks for everybody. What's the occasion? I'm taking myself a bride. Who is it? Tevye's eldest son. To Tevye. To Tevye. To Tevye.